John chapter 16. Moving through the Gospel of John at a pretty decent clip. We'll be finishing up and we'll actually... I was going to try to take three chapters tonight, but I just don't see any way because chapter 18 is so long. So it'll be another couple of weeks of going through John, and then we'll be back in First Chronicles. John chapter 16, again, Jesus' last instructions for the disciples before he would leave the earth. This is his kind of boot camp for them to prepare them for life without him. And he begins here in chapter 16, a continuation of what he had just been telling them in the previous chapter, that there would be people who would reject them because of their association with him. And he said, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They'll put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Persecution, hardships, it's a part of being a Christian. Jesus wanted them to understand that, wants us to understand it too. There are going to be some people who just because we're Christians, they're against us. Being put out of the synagogue was a big deal to them because of their inability to worship. But the idea there also is, you know, Jesus was always teaching in the synagogue. And so they would find out eventually that door wouldn't be open anymore. And for us, it's true that we can't expect to get a, a fair hearing among the world. We, there are certain avenues by which you certainly can communicate the gospel, but I think sometimes we get panicked when, or depressed or upset and angry. Our blood begins to boil because there just isn't someone who will go on television and tell it like it is, the bibli real biblical perspective, and that's kind of what they were facing. He was going, you know, they're not going to give you a fair hearing. They just won't. And that comes with the territory. And again, Jesus said, I didn't tell you this in the beginning because it wasn't going to be an issue, but I'm letting you know now that it can, it can get difficult sometimes. There will be people who think that killing you is something that they're doing for God. I think this is what we see in the world today where Christians are being slaughtered and martyred in the name of some God or other. And that's... Jesus said, that's the way it's going to be. Don't be surprised if you're being picked on. Don't act like, hey, what's going on here? We know what's going on here. We're followers of Jesus Christ. And because he was rejected, there will be times when we are too. Maybe by family members, maybe by people that we meet off the street where we just don't have a fair opportunity to let them hear what we have to say. Jesus said, don't be surprised, it'll be that way, and, and uh, you shouldn't stumble. We shouldn't be discouraged and feel that we're being shorted. He said, no, that's, that's the way it's going to be. And then he says, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Seems like you guys don't get it. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So... He's telling them he's going away, and they're bummed, but they're not even wondering where he's going. Not, 
seemingly not all that curious about it. Of course, earlier in chapter 14, where he began to say, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and, and I'll receive you unto myself. And the attitude was, we don't know what you're talking about. And so Jesus has been explaining this to him. But he says in verse 7, nevertheless, even though you don't get it, I'm telling you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And these next several verses we went over Sunday, so if you weren't here, you can get the tape of that. But basically, he's telling them, it's actually going to be better for you when I'm gone and the Holy Spirit is here. I think sometimes we think, boy, that would really have been something to be there when Jesus was actually here in the flesh. And no doubt about it, that would be something. That would be something special. We're going to spend an eternity with him and get the flavor of what it's about. But what Jesus is saying here, and I have to believe him that he's telling the truth, is actually we're better off right now with the Holy Spirit than they were there with Jesus with them in the flesh. And it's hard for us to relate to that because I think so often we ignore the Holy Spirit. We don't allow the Holy Spirit to work. We don't listen to him. We don't follow what he tells us. We, don't, we aren't sensitive to his still small voice. And so as a result, we're kind of lost. We're kind of wandering around going, I don't know what to do. Often for me, I see it kind of in 2020 hindsight. Something will happen. I'll get myself into something and then... I'll sit there and reflect on it and go, how did this happen? And then I think, you know, I kind of knew. I sensed something was up. I didn't feel a real peace about this, but I just decided to strive and drive it through and make it happen. And if we would believe the Holy Spirit when he's speaking to us, if we would sense that work and, and we stayed flexible enough, um, we'd be in good shape. We'd be better off than the disciples were even, but because often we aren't even interested in the Holy Spirit leading us. Um, in fact, I think a lot of times we substitute the Bible itself for the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit wants to lead us from within, and we're more comfortable having instructions from without. And so we take the scriptures and we twist them and turn them and stretch them in every way possible and we think we have a verse that tells us what to do. But the truth is, God never intended us just to live by an instruction manual. People often say the Bible is the instruction manual for life. And I understand that, and it's a good thing. But one of the things that the Bible instructs us on is that we aren't to live by instructions and rules, that we're to listen to the Spirit as He speaks to us within our hearts. And, and He's good at that. Today, I had a situation where I got a phone call from a person who was distraught and having some marital problems and, and he wants someone to do something. And so before really thinking a lot about it or praying about it, I, I kind of agreed that tomorrow morning I would show up at this person's house because his wife, he doesn't think, will consent to counsel and I'll ambush her and try to explain the truth to her. And, you know, Okay, okay, and, but as I thought about it, I thought, that's never worked. I've never been successful forcing someone to do something. And besides that, it's me violating what I know I need to learn more than maybe anything else in life is don't say yes just because somebody wants you to do something. 
even just because you really care about the person. In my head, I was thinking, you know what? It's going to take me about an hour of my time, and it's worth a shot at it to see if I can help. But the more I've reflected on it, and I'm going to have to give them a call tonight after the service and say, you know, this isn't going to work. Because I really, now I could go do it. I could end up being a real mess too. It could just pile more problems on my, you know, on my back. And the person who referred him to me was, said he's got like 15 calls from this person. And I'm thinking, that's the last thing I need. <laughs> and, and so again, it's one of those things where if Jesus was there, he might say, well, go ahead and see what works. But the Spirit working within us, called alongside to help us. If we learn to listen to him, everything changes in life. We don't allow ourselves to be controlled by other people's expectations. We don't allow ourselves to think, well, I probably ought to do this. We go, God, do you want me to do this? And if you're not laying it on my heart, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it just because. And so Jesus is explaining to them this truth Having the Holy Spirit, do you realize that as a Christian, God is living inside you and he's talking to you all the time? What a great deal that is. When the disciples were with Jesus and the Holy Spirit wasn't inside them, he was only with them, they didn't understand most of what he was saying. But the deal that we have with God is that we have the capacity with our spiritual ears to hear him as he leads us and he guides us. And so... It's a great deal. He goes on to talk about the advantages of when the Holy Spirit comes, and this is where we spent the bulk of our time on Sunday. He'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. That's the sin. The only sin that really matters in life is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. That's the one sin that the Bible says you can't pray for it. It can't be forgiven. If you die rejecting Jesus Christ, you've just committed the sin unto death. You've committed the unpardonable sin. Every other sin will be forgiven if you ask. But to refuse to ask, to reject Jesus Christ, that's the sin that'll kill you. All of the sins that we've committed, all the times that we've lied and cheated and stolen and done all sorts of other things, all of those sins were placed on Jesus Christ. They were on him when he went to the cross. But the one sin that isn't forgiven, apart from our heart changes, the sin of rejecting him because there's nothing he can do for you if you neglect him. And so he says, of sin, he didn't say, of sin because you're cheating, of sin because you're lying, of sin because you're perverted, of sin because, he says, of sin because they don't believe in me. That's the only thing that matters. And I believe that when we're sharing with people, it shouldn't be with the emphasis of telling them how wrong they are. I've seen this in witnessing. We were talking about this on the radio program today where people sometimes think that what they need to do to witness to someone is to come in with a battery of arguments to convince them of how wrong they are. And we had uh, Sammy Tanago on the show who has a ministry to Muslims and has written a book recently of how to witness to Muslims, and, and he's, he says the biggest thing that gets in the way of witnessing to Muslims is that every Christian gets out there and they want to explain, Allah isn't God, Allah is the moon God, Muhammad was a pervert, this and that, you guys bomb everything, and you do, and he said all that may be true, but that's not the way you try to talk to somebody about the good news. 
about the gospel. And so in the same way with every, everything else, if, if we approach pre- people and confront them on their sin, they're usually going to defend themselves. We never saw the Lord doing that. Think about the woman at the well. She's living in sin. She had been married multiple times before, five times before. And Jesus doesn't make a big deal about it. He says, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. He goes, yeah, that's true. You've had five husbands. The guy you're living with now isn't. You're living with them. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. <laughs> didn't, didn't let her know, hey, this is wrong. This will send you to hell. Because being married five times doesn't send you to hell. Rejecting Jesus Christ sends you to hell, and that's it. And so that needs to be the message that we share with people, not how bad they are. There are some people who emphasize in witnessing the idea of the law, use the law to establish that they're sinners. Well, you know what? Everybody in this world is condemned. Jesus told Nicodemus, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, to save the world. That's why the gospel is good news. The good news is not that you've had it. The good news is not you're awful. The good news is not you're going to die in your sins. The good news is Jesus died for you. All you have to do is turn to him, and he'll turn everything around. That's where his emphasis is, and, and that would be a wise place for us to put our emphasis. Of sin, because they don't believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Again, as we said Sunday, the righteousness that's given to us by God, placed within us, the desire that he gives us to just want to do the right things. When Jesus is with you, you see what he does, and you do the same thing. You're fine. But now that he's gone, the Holy Spirit has come, it's even better. Because he can place within us the desires to do the right thing. He makes us want to do it without even realizing it, without even it being a burden. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The judgment, the concept that there are consequences to sin. It's something that the Holy Spirit helps us to see, to discover that we don't make decisions without consequences, that the consequences are there. And ultimately, the one who comes up with all these great ideas of how we are to sin, the devil is going to be judged himself. And in the same way, all sin will be. Either your sin is judged on the cross by Jesus, or you'll take it yourself to your grave. And Again, understanding if I do certain things, other things result. And so that's what the Holy Spirit does. And then they're already lost. They don't understand this. And he said, look, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us into truth. I think most of us think that we can tell the truth when we see it, that we can recognize it. Remember the old TV show? Well, some of you don't because it was, you, you were born after it came on. But to tell the truth, they would have three people and they would all tell the same story. But one of them was telling the truth and the other two were lying. Well, it's amazing how the audience so often becomes just split because we all think, you know, it's one of the spiritual gifts that almost everyone thinks they have is the gift of discernment. Everyone thinks they're good at being able to sniff out whether something's true or not. 
The problem is Satan is the father of lies. He is the one who is a professional. He invented lying. He is so able to fool us that if we rely on our own senses and our own abilities or, or we just sit there and analyze the situation, we'll be wrong a lot. The Holy Spirit working inside of us is able to lead us to the truth. I don't care how smart you are, you can be fooled. I don't care how um, clever you think you may be. All you have to do is watch people who are watching a magician. And we know that they're tr- it's a trick. We know, well, there are some people that don't know. Because if, you know, they sit there and actually, every time you see a magician, there's some Christian that comes forward and is claiming that it's demons or something. It's David Blaine, whoever. It's, it's illusion. It's not, they're not using the powers of Satan to make a 747 disappear or something. It's just a trick. And yet we look at it and it's like, I can't imagine how he does this. Now, ever since TiVo came along, it helps because when there's a magician on TV, I'll stop the picture and I'll single frame advance it and I can generally see how it happens. And so far, I haven't seen a demon. It's just a guy who's really skilled. But see, we can all be fooled. We can. I, I, I've told the story before. One time at a Super Bowl party, there was this great magician there, and he actually levitated a little bit, and he was real good at what he did. And I was just going, this is amazing. And then several of the women who were at the party were in the next room holding hands, pleading the blood of Jesus. They really thought, <laughs> it was just a trick. But we can be tricked. And the truth is, think about how many times you've been conned by someone. Think about how many times that you've believed in someone and it turned out it wasn't so. How many times you've been fooled. Because deep down inside all of us, there's a fool hiding in there somewhere. And so the Holy Spirit, we need him to lead us into truth. Again, there are some people who substitute the Bible for the Holy Spirit. They really believe that they can just check it out in Scripture and then they'll know what the truth is. But the scripture can't make any sense to us unless the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding us. And so I fear that sometimes we come up with almost a humanistic theological approach where we just say, well, here's what the Bible teaches, so that's what I believe. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Then what's the Holy Spirit for? See, we can all be fooled. Every kooky teaching that's out there, there are some people who believe it and they think that the Bible teaches it. And so we need to take the Bible, yes, and compare it to what we see in life, but we need to say, God, I need your Holy Spirit to help. I need your leading, your illumination. I want to not just see the truth because someone told it to me, or I see some verse that seems to say that. I need your Spirit to make it real to me. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we throw the Bible out and just say, that's it, just feel the Spirit and just, no, that's not it. But the Holy Spirit is called to come alongside you, to work through your common sense, work through your experiences and what you know and what you see in the scriptures. You want all the data that you can possibly get, and then the Holy Spirit will come in and pull it all together and cause it to make sense for you. But also the Holy Spirit, it says, will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't do things that attract attention to himself. 
And sometimes when people are, oh, the work of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, and the Spirit's glorified. But see, everything that the Spirit does, like everything that the Father does, is all designed to glorify Jesus Christ. Now you go, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, it is fair, and here's why. For one thing, they're all working together, so there's no jealousy or competition between them. It's not like, you know, hey, how come it's not the Spirit, the Son, and the Father? Why? It isn't, you know, when people start a business that has two people's names, well, who's going to be in front? You know, why, why can't it be Garfunkel and Simon? But, see, with the Holy Spirit and with the God the Father, they both, as they work together with the Son, understand that unless people see Jesus, they're lost. And so all of the attention of the Godhead is focused on Jesus. And it's because if people don't see him, they can worship the Spirit all they want. They can have deep, mystical, spooky experiences all they want. But it's not going to save them. It's not going to be what the world really needs. And even people who know Jesus and then they get caught up. A friend of mine is living up in Canada right now. And he's going to a church called the Airport Vineyard. You might have heard of that church because that's where a lot of the weird laughing and barking in the spirit and everything really kind of started up there. And so he was telling me yesterday online that, yeah, he's going to this church and boy, there's some interesting things going on. And I go, well, like what? And he said, well, people are taking pictures in the sanctuary and you can see these things that they're saying are angels, so I said, hey, you know, and they said, he said, different people using different cameras are coming up with these things. So I said, oh, you know, email me some. So he sent me several of the pictures, and they are kind of weird, and it does. But I noticed, too, like there's people laying on the floor, and so they still are up to some of their old tricks also. But in the picture, there are these blue circles. They have kind of weird swirls in them, and they're different sizes, and they just appear throughout the room. And he sent me like four different ones. And I'm just going, that's interesting. I told him, I don't know what it is. I'm going to show it to a photographer friend of mine and see what he thinks. But I'm pretty sure it's not angels, these blue balls. Nowhere, you know, has anyone seen an angel that looks like a drop of something on a camera lens? And so, I mean, I don't know exactly what it is. But what happens when things like that happen? Something bizarre happens. And you, it gets all of the attention. Is anyone talking about Jesus anymore? Well, no, not when the blue ball angels are here. Come on, you know, this is, this is the latest deal. These poor people that are slain in the spirit laying there on the floor are feeling like, hey, what about me? Well, sorry, we got cameras now. So, you know, you have a church full of cameras, people snapping pictures because look at this, it's the spirit. That's a good way of knowing that it's not the spirit. Because the Spirit does not attract attention to himself. He does things in a way that don't freak you out. He does things in a subtle way whereby God is glorified. And I'm convinced that a lot of times people are afraid of the Spirit. And people don't even hear from the Spirit and listen to him. And therefore they're stuck without guidance. Because they think that the Spirit's going to work in a really weird way. And so they're either afraid that that would happen. Or more likely... They're looking for something weird, and God is speaking to them, and the Spirit is moving, and they don't even realize it because they didn't know how normally he actually works. He's from within. He knows us. He abides with us. He's one called alongside us. So we don't look for weird things to happen. 
Because when that happens, the glory goes in the wrong place. It goes either to that person who's this great healer or this leader or this church. And, and you know, until they figure out what's in those pictures, now people are going to be flying back to Toronto, the new Toronto blessing. Get the picture. And they'll probably have T-shirts with these blue spheres on them. And that, that's, not what, that's not what God does. Jesus says, look, everything that the Father has done has been given to me, and everything that the Spirit does is going to bring glory to me. It's as simple as that. Don't look for something that's going to be a distraction from that which really matters. I'm convinced in the church today there's just two really ungodly extremes. One extreme whereby the Spirit is what it's all about, and the other extreme whereby it's just Simple facts, the Bible, I know what to do. I intellectually can figure out what the right thing is. It's like either glorifying the Spirit or neglecting the Spirit. And God would have us to have a balance. The Spirit's there to help, and that's what he wants to do. Jesus then says in verse 16, a little while and you won't see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Sounds like a magician, but it's not what he had in mind. Because I go to the Father. The disciples are hearing him going, a little while you'll see me, now you see me, now you don't, now you see me, now what? So they began to mutter, they didn't want to ask the question, so they were whispering to each other, kind of like kids in school, they don't get something, they don't just ask the teacher, it's like, what did they say? What, was that on the test? What's the, you know, rather than just go to the source, because we don't want to be thought of as being ignorant. What is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father, what's he talking about? A little while. We don't know what he's saying. And Jesus knew that they were thinking this and whispering it, and and they wanted to ask him, but they didn't want to look stupid. And he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Most assuredly I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I'll see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So Jesus said, okay, you're going to see me, then you're going to not see me, then you're going to see me again. He said, think of it as a woman who's having a baby. Now, if people knew how painful it is to have babies, they would be a lot less anxious to have babies. But what happens is, for one thing, we have these whole, this whole childhood education thing where they're teaching you how to breathe and everything, and, and you don't know. If it's your first kid, you're, you're believing this, this teacher who's telling you that, yes, childbirth is one of the wonder, most wonderful experiences, and you'll be able to just breathe right and picture yourself off on a beach island. So, that stuff doesn't work. It's just to fool people into thinking that, oh, yeah, this will be a piece of cake. It's not. It's terrible. And, I, and I, I still think the best time was when the men got to sit out in the waiting room till it was all over. But that's just me. But, you, you know, it hurts. It's painful. It's awful. But 
Once you hold that baby in your arms, you forget all about that all of a sudden. And again, it's easy for a man to say because, you know, the, the most pain we go through is it hurts our ears when they're yelling. But, you know, he says it's like birth. You see this. It's, it's happening. It seems awful. You go, I'll never do this again. And then you have that baby and you go, hmm, I wonder how many months before we can do this again. <laughs> this, is, this is great. And even for a mother holding that child in her arms, there is no memory until the women get together and compare stories when they're talking to some poor pregnant gal who's pregnant for her first time. And then it's like, yeah, it was a Mack truck being shoved out of my body. And, you know. But Jesus is using this imagery and saying, you know, there are some things that are so rewarding that it makes the pain not seem like a big deal. And he's saying... That's the way this is going to be. You're going to weep. The world is going to be glad. But you're going to see me again. I'm going, to, I'm going to return. I'm going to rise from the dead. And it began to soak into them. And then he gave them another advantage. He said, you know, from now on, you're not going to ask me for anything. See, while he was there, they asked him. But he's saying, because I go to the Father, you can ask him directly in my name. I'm the ticket for you to directly correspond with God. He said, up until this point, you haven't done that, but you're going to do that. I'm hooking you up with God, with the Father. See, our fellowship isn't just with Jesus. Jesus brings us into fellowship with the totality of the Godhead. He causes us to know the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. And now he says, you don't have to hide behind me. I opened the door, and you can go directly to the Father in my name. And that's something that Jesus saw as being a great advantage. Sometimes I don't think it soaks into us. And we think, hey, Jesus is enough because Jesus is who we can relate to the easiest. But the truth is, it's that fellowship with the whole Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the totality of who God is, and, and we can have that relationship. Now, what Jesus is letting them know, too, is the same fellowship that he had with the Father, then you can have that. And that means like Jesus. How did, what was the key to him living his life the way he did? What was the key to him never being in a hurry? To him being satisfied, saying yes or saying no, or saying wait, and he was okay with that. The key was, Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, would go and spend time with the Father. And as they communed together, he knew what he needed to do. And probably more importantly, much more importantly, he knew what he didn't need to do. And so he was at peace. And he's saying, I'm putting you in that position. Hey, me, you... The Father, the Spirit, we'll be getting together. We'll be working together. The, the whole Godhead is going to be working in your life. This is a great thing for you. It's better than just having me there personally. And so then he goes on to say, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I'll tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I don't say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. So he's saying, I'm 
making that path open for you to go directly to the Father. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to the Father. You're going to be able to go to the Father. And so now they're going, oh, okay, I think I get it. I don't know if they were really telling the truth, but they said, see, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Still had to be pretty confusing, but I think they knew they had used up their questions. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Kind of what they were saying was, this what you're saying kind of makes sense even though I don't really know what it means, but we realize you know everything, so you must have come from God. Now they should have known that already. And I don't know that it had really soaked into them all that he was communicating to them. But they were too confused to come up with another good question. It's kind of like, you know, when there are times when someone lays something out for you and you don't even understand enough of it to ask a a decent question about it. If you ever run into a problem on your computer network, say, and you're one of these people that you know all about computer networks, You plug in the Ethernet cable, you pay your cable bill or DSL bill, you plug it in, you fire it up, and it hooks on, and there you are, you're on the Internet. And something's not working, and you start talking to, you call tech support for a company that's in Texas, and you get somebody in India that hardly speaks English, and they're telling you all of these things, and you're just going, you know what, I don't don't even know how to ask a question. My computer's not working. That's the deal. That's what's happening. And so often, I think the disciples, their attitude, kind of like when I was in seminary one time, we had a guy, um, one of my philosophy professors who spoke in chapel. And he was one of the brightest people that I've ever come to know. I used to enjoy so much having conversations with him. But he gave a lecture. He taught up at Berkeley, and he also taught there at Talbot. And he gave a lecture on veridicalism. And it was, a, it was a great lecture. You had to really pay attention. And I'm pretty good at these things. But, I mean, I was just barely hanging in there and understanding how he was comparing veridicalism to evidentialism to all this stuff. And, and afterwards, I was convinced 99% of the people there, including the professors, probably didn't know what he was talking about. And the ASB president, who was an old boy from Texas, got up there and he said, he said, you know... I didn't understand a word he said, but I'm glad he's on our side. (laughs) And often people would say that about Dr. Wilder Smith and others. It's like, wow, he sure knows what he's talking about. I'm glad, you know, if I ever really had a question, I'm sure he could answer it for me. And so that's kind of what they're saying. You know, now we're sure you know all things. So if you know everything, we're fine. And Jesus said, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you're going to be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. Jesus is saying, oh, I see, you get it now, huh? You're ready, you understand. Hey, pretty soon, just in a matter of minutes, you're going to be scattered and tossed, and I'm going to be by myself. And he says, not really by myself, because I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. Now they're confused again. Now they're going, what? We're going to be scattered? I thought we were going to know God, and I figured when we get there, we'll understand. And he goes, no, this is, there are things going on still that you don't get. And then this incredible verse that I love, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. <coughs> in the world you'll have tribulation, 
but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The comfort that God gives us is never, don't worry, bad things aren't going to happen. The comfort that he gives us is that our peace is in him, that he'll provide a peace that passes understanding. And so he says, there's going to be a lot of tribulation, a lot of trouble, but I'm going to win. I have overcome the world. And our peace, we should never expect it to be a peace that comes from just everything good happening to us. I'm sure you know people that you think they don't have any problems. They just seem like everything's easy for them. And I know some people that seem that way. Generally, if you get a little closer, you'll find out it's not quite what you think. That they may deal with trials or they may go 20 years trouble-free and then all of a sudden, boom, it hits. The truth is, this world is full of tribulation and it's that way for all of us. But Jesus said, I've overcome the world. Therefore, he doesn't want us to escape from the world. He wants us to overcome the world, be overcomers with him. And so the promise that no matter what we go through, he's going to win. No matter what we go through, we're going to win too. I love that first psalm in the book of Psalms where it says, Blessed or oh, how happy is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water who brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also won't wither, and whatsoever he does will prosper. The promise that whatever you do will prosper if you meditate on the word of God and don't hang around people that are going to pull you down, those scoffers, those evil people. It doesn't mean it's not going to be a rough road somewhere along the way. But I believe that God has blessings in store for us if we walk with him, if we meditate on his word, if we draw close to him. We'll end up being happy even though There are difficult situations that we will face. But if our peace is found in him, then we can guarantee we're always going to come out on top. God's always going to bless. And again, as his analogy of the woman with child who's delivering a baby, hey, there are going to be times in our lives when it hurts really bad. But then on the other side of that, there's going to be that incredible joy that comes from holding treasure in your life whether that treasure is a child, whether that treasure is someone that you love who's come to know the Lord, whether that treasure is that you've lost a job and then God gets you a better job and you just go, look what God has done. Look how he's restored what I've lost. Whether it's a relationship, whatever it is, we can know that he has overcome. Wherever we are right now struggling, there's good things that are going to happen. There are people in this world who just try to pep you up to believe that. But as Christians, we can know it because he says it. We are winners. We are going to prevail because he is prevailing. And he says that we can do everything when he strengthens us as he works in our lives. And so chapter 17, we often refer to the prayer that Jesus taught on a couple of occasions. Once in the beginning of his ministry there on the, on the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where Jesus said, here's how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We call that the Lord's Prayer. On all the plaques, on all the jewelry, it says the Lord's Prayer, and that's it. Jesus taught that same prayer later in the end of his ministry when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And again, this is interesting to me, by the way. We sometimes talk about people who quote the Lord's Prayer as being vain repetition. And it can become vain repetition if you're not praying it from your heart. But I personally believe that every time we go through what we call the Lord's Prayer, it can be the expression of our heart. If you're going to copy a prayer, copy that one. But Jesus himself Two and a half years after he initially gave that prayer, when they said, teach us to pray, he quoted that same prayer verbatim. And so it's really not fair to criticize some of the denominations and people like that who quote the Lord's Prayer as a regular pattern of their worship. Jesus did that himself. Um, But what I was going to say is that's not really the Lord's Prayer because Jesus can't pray, forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not, deliver us from evil and things like that. That's his model prayer for us. But John 17 is the real Lord's prayer. This is Jesus praying himself. Now, I suppose he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. This was probably prayed at a time when we know he was sweating drops of blood, travailing with the Father. The disciples were supposed to be off standing guard at this point. But at least one of them snuck up there and wrote this thing down as he was praying. The other guys were sleeping maybe. But the disciples must have been the ones who recorded this. But Jesus was really alone with the Father, praying, pouring his heart out to God. And he spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. He said, I know this is time. It wasn't time before, the time is now. Interesting to me that when he says glorify your son, he's not talking about what we would have referred to as glorifying him, like taking him on a donkey and having people cheering, you know, Hosanna in the highest, save now, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's our concept of glorifying But Jesus was about to go through the most painful and excruciating experience, one like no one before or since has ever experienced. Now you say, well, come on, there are people who've experienced more pain than the cross. There are people who've been skinned alive, boiled in oil, and things like that. No, that's true. I'm not saying that Jesus experienced more physical pain than anyone else did, but it was that understanding that he was going to be torn from his fellowship with the Father. It was expressed in his cry in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that pain can't compare to anything else. The one who had been in fellowship as the member of the Godhead for all of eternity before time began to now take upon himself the sins of the world. Well, We can't imagine, we can't fathom the horror of that event. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, glorify your son. It would make more sense to us if he said, I'm about to die and then glorify me. But the way Jesus is glorified was by giving himself. 
That's how the glory happens because that's what accomplished our salvation. And so Jesus is willingly, Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. Was it the Jews who caused Jesus to die? No. Was it the Romans? No. It was, it was our sin that did it, and yet it pleased the Lord to crush him, Isaiah 53 says. So the Father was in on it, but ultimately Jesus said, I'm doing it myself. No one does this to me. And so he's offering himself to the Father and saying, go ahead and do what it takes to glorify me. I'm ready to do what you want me to do. There's the scripture where he said, talking to Nicodemus, that you know, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And we often use that, the scripture that says, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. And we think of that as being Jesus put on a pedestal. But it was Jesus being put on the cross for where he was glorified the most was also where he suffered the most. And the truth is for us, same thing might happen. The greatest thing that God may ever do through your life may be horribly painful, may be really difficult. But we need to have the attitude, God, if you're gonna be glorified through me being crushed and destroyed, then I want you to be glorified because that's what will save people. That's what will make the difference. And if we humble ourselves like he did, we'll be lifted up high and exalted. It's clear, the Bible says, that'll happen, but we have to trust him. And so we see Jesus trusting the Father. He says, as you've given him authority over all flesh, speaking of that Father gave to the Son, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So he said, you've given me the authority to save people. That's what I'm about to do. But he says, ultimately, this is eternal life. It's not eternal life is just living forever, existing forever. Because the truth is, I think in that sense, I believe that everyone has eternal life. Spirits are eternal. Souls are eternal. But you'll either live forever in judgment or you'll live forever in the presence of God. And so he says, when I'm talking eternal life, this is what I mean, this is what I'm talking about, knowing you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Ultimately, when we talk about eternal life, it's really about a relationship with God. It's about knowing him. That's what gives us the breadth of a life that's worth living for eternity as well. He says, I have glorified you on the earth. I finished the work that you've given me to do, as he said on the cross when he said, it is finished. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus was always God. He always existed before the world, before anything was created. He was the one who did it. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And now he's saying, Father, I'm laying my life down. Lift me up to the glory that I had before. I'm willing to be glorified on the cross, and I'm trusting you to bring me to the place of ultimate glorification as God, where, as Paul said, he's given a name that's above every name. And so he says, I've done what you've called me to do. I'm just about to finish it. So receive me back. And that's an attitude that we ought to have when we go through tough times, when we go through difficulties and hurts. Lord, 
if you can glorify yourself through what I'm going through right now, I'm going to trust you that ultimately the story is going to work out really great. That ultimately you'll glorify me in your blessings as I allow you to glorify me in my sufferings. I have manifested your name. Now he's praying for the disciples. I've manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So he says, those that you gave to me, they're yours. I received them. I've kept them. I've told them your truth. I've ministered to them. Now, again, this doesn't mean that somehow the Father saved them and then they were able to accept Jesus somehow and now they're his. It's not what he's saying. See, the Father committed everyone into Jesus' hands, into the hands of Jesus. And, and, and so Jesus is saying, they're yours, I know it. And I've been faithful to give them everything I could give them. Now remember, Judas is one of the ones that he had kept, that he had hung on to, that he had taught. He did for Judas what he did for the other 11 disciples. Amazing that he did it. But he said, I pray for them. I don't pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And so he said, I'm not praying for the world right now. I'm praying for the ones that you've saved. I'm praying for the ones that you've entrusted to me, that you've given to me. And they're yours, they're mine. We share this fellowship that you want to have. Now, I'm no longer in the world, at least not for long, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. He's saying, Father, keep them. And God is keeping us. God answers this prayer for us every day. He will protect us. He looks out for us. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it. But the truth is, if you knew what God kept you from, and at the same time, if you also knew how necessary it was for you to go through the hard times that you go through in order to make you who you are, if you could go back and live your life according to your will instead of God's, you'd realize, he was keeping me. Boy, he kept me from a lot. And he does for all of us. Today, no doubt, God has kept you from something that could have killed you. But not only that, he's also kept you from something that you wanted that would have ruined you as well. That, that feeling that you had, ooh, I wish I had this, or I wish I could win money this way, or get a relationship like this. Be glad that God's keeping you, because he keeps you from things that you don't want, that aren't for your good. And so as he's praying for them, he says, he says keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Throughout this prayer, and we looked a couple Sundays ago at a part of this prayer, this idea of unity, the heart of Jesus saying, I want my people to be together. And it isn't just because we need each other. It's not just a teamwork kind of thing. It's a fellowship thing whereby as we grow closer to God, we also grow closer to each other. And there's a part of God that I can only see when I see it in you. 
And when I see it in even people who are Christians that I, that I don't like, I like all of you. But there are some people that really get on my nerves, and yet they're reflecting a part of Jesus that I need to hear, that I need to see. And so the necessity of a oneness that says, we want the whole picture, we want the complete package. Now he says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. So he said, the ones you gave me, I kept them except for one. Earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus said that he chose the 12, and yet one of you is a devil. Judas was chosen, he was given, and so anything that you do theologically to try to hang on to some of these verses and, and act as if, you know, you're either chosen or you're not, you're either elect or you're not, you're either you know, you're either elect to eternal life or you're chosen for damnation and all those sorts of things. When you see this and understand it, you realize that we, we sometimes make the scriptures say more than it really does. Because if what Jesus was saying, for instance, when he says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Or as he says, I kept all those that you gave to me, except one. <laughs> He's obviously not talking about something that's designating their eternal salvation. See, Scripture had been prophesied about Judas that he was going to reject Jesus Christ, and yet he was chosen anyway. So that choosing is not just a theological branding of someone and saying, there, now you're saved whether you like it or not. No one is saved whether they like it or not. As many as receive him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. So he says, verse 13, Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I love that. That Jesus is saying, what I'm praying for is what they need in order to have their joy fulfilled. It's interesting that one of the purposes of the book of 1 John, he says, I've written these things to you that your joy may be full. God's desire is for us to have joy. And don't trick yourself into thinking that that joy is something that's an inner joy that doesn't really show on the outside. Sometimes we, you know, I'm not happy, but I have the joy of the Lord. Oh, really? Where is it? It's like inside. How far inside? It's way down there. It's so, it's so hidden. If I let you see it, I'd have to kill you. You know, that's our... Joy is joy. If we don't smile... If we don't enjoy life, if we're not living with that outward expression of joy, then we're not experiencing what God wants us to have. It's not full. Oh, we have joy. We all enjoy certain things. But the heart of our Lord Jesus is that our joy would be full, that we would experience all the joy that he has for us. And again, it's something that happens in fellowship in fellowship with God, in fellowship with each other. You cut others out of it, joy is missing. You cut God out of it, joy is missing. But he wanted them to have that joy. And so uh, he says, that's why they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. He had talked about that already to them. And he said, I don't pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So he says, I'm not trying to pull them out of the world. I'm not calling them to some sort of an escape. And sometimes I think we believe, wrongfully, that God put us on this world, and what we need to do is hide as much as we possibly can. Run a kind of underground sort of Christianity that doesn't show in the world. But we're left here to affect the world. We're not here to isolate ourselves from the world. We're not here to have Christian versions of everything that the world has. We're to be a part of society. We're to mix and yet to be protected at the same time from the evil one, from Satan's influence. There are people who become completely dominated by the world and that's Wrong. That's allowing Satan to call the shots. At the same time, there are others who believe that their greatest need is to stay away from the world as much as they possibly can. Our calling isn't either one of those. Our calling is to infiltrate the world. It's to make a difference in the world. If we don't do that, we're like a football team in a perpetual huddle. Always making plans, but we don't actually get out there and do anything. Like an athletic team that practices but doesn't have any games scheduled. I remember when uh, my son Danny was in high school, a lot of you remember Jason that used to work with our junior high kids. He's moved back east now. But Jason was a, a great swimmer, and he was also a water polo player. So Jason got this idea. He got all pumped up, and he goes, Dave, can we have a water polo team at Calvary? I'm like, well, we don't have a pool. Not anybody knows how to play, but we had had one years ago when we used another school's pool. But the problem is, one of the high schools in our area said, yeah, you can use our pool, but their heater was broken, their pool was messed up. And so Jason actually talked my son Danny into joining the water polo team. And I'd see him out there on the field. I'd be out coaching my softball team, and I look out in center field, and there's the water polo team with water polo balls, passing them around and doing all that. And it's like, well, it's nice that they're that dedicated, but water polo happens in the water. It works much better that way. It was especially pathetic to see those guys out there in speedos. No, I'm just, I more speedos. But that was a deal Danny made with him: no speedos. And so, but they never really got to play; they got to practice. But that's not the way we're designed to function in this world. We're supposed to be in the game. We should be affecting and impacting our world. I think sometimes we think, well, the ultimate is if you can work with all Christians. But if you have to work at some heathen place, then the next best thing is every day all the Christians will get together for lunch and a Bible study. And as much as possible, we can avoid rubbing elbows with the heathen Hey, that's what we're here for. It's an awful thing when we get ourselves so isolated that now we have no impact, no effect at all on the world. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to take them out of the world. They're here for a reason. But I want you to protect them from the evil one. And that should be our prayer every day. God, as I interact with this world, help me not to love the world. And help me not to follow Satan and his set of values. Help me to change the world by the way that I live my life, by the integrity that I show. Jesus said, don't hide your lamp under a bushel. Hold it out in plain view. He said, and here's the thing. 
You need to do that so that the people in the world can see your good works. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. They should see that we are a cut above, that we care a little more. I think the recent tsunami disaster is a great opportunity for the world to see some things. Now, there are some people who are like, yeah, but if you just give them food and you don't preach the gospel to them, all you're doing is feeding Muslims or something. Well, so? I mean, it's supposed to be our good works that gets people's attention. And I don't think that we have to beat them over the head with the Bible every time we're doing something nice for them. I don't think that it's like, hey, let's do something really nice for the community. Let's have a car wash, and then let's have the gospel just blaring out in a speaker. They know who you are, and if you do something nice for someone, that might be all that God wants you to do at that point. They see you're different. They understand that, and they'll come looking. They'll come asking. They'll wonder what the difference is, and so God desires us to shine, to let our light shine in the middle of a crooked and perverse world, that we would participate with that world and that we would share the love of Jesus with that world and that then people could see the difference. See what life is like when you're in, in the control of the God of heaven. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. How to be set apart, how to be sanctified, how to be dedicated. The word of God, the truth of God's word. It's why it's so important for us to study the Bible regularly. It's why we go through the Bible. Because it's the Word of God that sets us apart, that sanctifies us, that speaks to us. There are so, I was talking to someone who called in on the radio program today, and they were saying, somebody told them, oh, you don't really need to read the Bible. And they said, do you? And I said, why don't you read Psalm 119? It's full of, the longest chapter in the Bible is all about all the benefits of the word of God. How shall a young person cleanse his way by taking heed according to thy word? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. All of these things, and, and that is, that's what the word is supposed to do in our lives. It cleans us. The only way that happens, though, is if we open it with an open heart. It can't be just learning it to learn it. It can't be learning it so that I can see all of the things that you need to hear. It can't be reading the Word of God in a mindless sort of way, but it's opening my heart to the Word. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Word, and that changes me. As Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, you look at it, it's like looking in a mirror and you're changed from glory to glory. It has an effect. The Word does that. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. He's saying that about us as well. He was sent to a world that was lost. And he turned around and he says, and I'm sending them. And he has sent you. He has sent me. He said, the last offer he gave of, of advice, the last command that he gave is, go into all the world. And preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them, discipling them, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. I'm with you, even to the end of the age. It's why the Holy Spirit ultimately came upon them. But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in the uttermost parts of the earth. You don't have to do it, but he is sending you. 
He is calling you to go out there and make a difference. And that's what he's saying. But he's saying you need to be set apart in order to do that. And that's what his word does. And then at praying for us specifically, those who would come to the Lord through the testimony of the apostles, he says, I don't pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Again, we looked at this a couple Sunday mornings ago, and uh, so you can get that tape if you didn't get it. Jesus, first thing that he prays for you about, for me about, is that we would be one. Because us being one has an impact on the world, allows people to see that Jesus is credible. And when we divide the body up, and when we decide to group people by their tendencies, their ages, their whatever, then what we're doing is denying the world the opportunity to see that we can be really different, and yet God can work in us. It's one of the reasons why I try not to jump on rallying points that tend to divide people. For instance, you don't, during an election, you don't see me harping to get out the vote or to do this or do that or write letters here or appeal to this or that. It's not that those aren't good causes. It's not that I don't think that we should be good citizens. But what happens is it polarizes. It's kind of funny because in most of the churches around here, if it's a good, solid Christian church, Everyone here is, you know, 90% of us probably are conservative Republicans. And we have all these great biblical reasons as to why we are. But I go down the freeway a few miles, and at Calvary Chapel South Bay, almost everyone there is a Democrat. And they love God, and they're devoted to Him. They see things from a different perspective. And I spoke at Calvary South Bay like the day after the election. And I wasn't all fired up about the election anyway, but, but Steve Mays called me and he goes, hey, Dave, don't go up there and just talk about, oh, it's praise the Lord for the election results, because he said everybody at my church is really bummed about the election. Now, what does that mean, that Steve is a bad teacher? No. It's that the body of Christ is broader than we think. And so if we gather together, here's the thing. If we would blend together, maybe we would start to understand. We Republicans could start to understand some of the issues that are, that, are, that are so strong that Christians who love the Lord will end up siding with a Democratic candidate because the things, some of the things they care about, they feel that that is a more Christian position than the one we have. See, we have to decide. We can go, you know what, the Republicans are more pro-life. Although that's, I mean, I suppose that's so. And that's a big issue to me, so therefore I'm going to vote Republican. Well, that's okay. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that in some ways the Democrats are much closer to a Christian position in some other issues. Certainly, let's face it, those of you who have been Christians for a long time, and I grew up in conservative Christianity. Now, let's be honest. We were on the wrong side on civil rights. We were on the wrong side. The church, the conservative, you know, American church was pretty much on the wrong side on that issue. Now we all kind of realize it and we go, yeah, you know, and we almost pretend like we were out there marching. And in reality, no, that wasn't an issue to us. We were on the wrong side probably on the environment a lot of times. We're on the wrong side and looking out for the poor. Is that such a strong value that God wants us to, to consider? We were on the right side on a lot of issues, too. 
But how do you, you know, and why should we just say, you know what? We're Republicans, so we want to go strong on national defense. We want conservative economics. We want to have a pro-life stance. And then we go, so if you're a Democrat, you should really just go to one of those Democrat churches. No, we should be able to get together as a body of Christ and learn from each other and understand what matters to different people. Those people who differ from us aren't better or worse than we are spiritually. They're just a different part of the body. And God has designed us to function together because then we'll get the whole picture. There isn't one of us that as an island can depict all the facets of who God is. And so this was the prayer of Jesus. Make them one. Do this. The world will be amazed when that happens. And the glory that you gave me, I've given them that they may be one just as we are. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect or mature in one. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name. I will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is his prayer of unity, of saying all of these people, hey, one of them at least, Matthew was a businessman, a tax collector. Some of them are fishermen. Some of them came from other directions. They're different guys. But God, it's going to include all the people that I call Make them one, put them together. That's the desire of the heart of Jesus. And that should be our desire. Not that we push for we are the world and everyone together. No, it's not it. It's that we appreciate and understand that God makes people different and that we need to value those differences and honor them and accept them and, and praise God for them that I am so glad that the body of Christ is bigger than just Calvary Chapel Pacific Hills or just Calvary Chapel or just California. His body is huge. And as you get out there and you see it, you'll find people who are a member of a Catholic church who just really know God and love God. And you might go, how in the world could that happen? And when you say that, when you feel that way, again, that's the surprise that he's looking for. Wow. You can work in someone like that, somebody in, a, in an Eastern Orthodox church or someone in, yeah, his program's a lot bigger than we think. Let it be that way, and let's be one, and let's see everyone who names the name of Jesus, who believes in him, who trusts in him as our brothers and sisters, as a part of what God wants to do. Jesus is praying that that will happen. Don't fight against what Jesus is praying for. That's not healthy. Let's pray. Lord, we're just grateful that we have God living inside us, teaching us, leading us, guiding us, working within us. And we repent for the fact that often we quench the Spirit. We don't listen to you. We ignore that still small voice that's speaking to us. And when you say that unity is the most important thing that you prayed for in this prayer, we don't want it. 
because it's just more fun to be around people who are all like us. But God, we don't want to make people like us. We want us to be made like you. And so, Lord, do that work. Answer that prayer of Jesus on our behalf. We thank you for providing for us everything that we need. Lord, help us to cooperate with you, to walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.